Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to worship you. We ask you to help and guide us as we look at your word and see what you would want us to see from this. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 22, starting at verse 15. We're going to start the second half of this chapter with a new prophecy. And this one is uh, a prophecy to Shebna. So verse 15. Thus saith the Lord God, the host, Go get you unto the treasure, even unto Shibna, which is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewed you out a sepulcher here, as he that hews him out a sepulcher on high, and that graveth an inhabit- habitation for himself in a rock? Behold, the Lord will carry you away with a mighty captivity, and will surely cover you. He will surely violently turn and toss you like a ball into a large country and there shall you die and there the chariots of your glory shall be the shame of your Lord's house. And I will drive you from your station and from your state shall you be put down. Alright. So here we we start hearing him talk to Shibna. Shibna is a person in Hezekiah's royal court. This verse tells us that he is a treasurer. <laughs> Go to the treasure, even that person, Shibna. And if you want to read more about Shibna, you can go to 2 Kings 18. Uh, there's not much there other than his name, but we don't know much about him. But here, Isaiah is making a prophecy to him, and he says, this, this man is over the house. He's over Hezekiah's properties, which means he's pretty high up in the palace. He's, in, he's an important man. And we see from what he's being criticized about, he really thinks he's an important man. Uh, because in verse 16 it says, what have you here, whom have you here, that you have hewed out a sepulcher as he that hews out a sepulcher on high and that, gra- that graveth an inhabitation for himself in a rock. So here we see Shibna is setting up a very splendid sepulcher is what he's being accused of. He's, he's, he's got pride and he says, I'm so important, I'm going to make myself a great sepulcher or tomb. Uh, and we think back to the king, the, the uh, pharaohs in Egypt building great big pyramids and burying themselves in it. We have other places in the world where they build these great big elaborate uh, tombs. Uh, this is what he's being accused of. What is this that you have here in the, up in Jerusalem? You know, uh, who is this for? And he goes, uh, why are you here, you know, why are you digging out a sepulcher as he that hews a sepulcher on high? In other words, you put it up high where everybody's going to see it. And all over the promised land, there are these tomb, beautiful sepulchers. And what people do a lot of times, they put these, they carve out great big, gates and facades in front of them to make them look good. In Jesus' day, he accused the Pharisees of being whitewashed sepulchers. And what they would do, very strange there, is they would bury the bones or bury the body. They'd let them stay there for about a year. And when, the, when they turned, when all the skin and tissue all worked away from it, they'd gather up all the bones, put them in a box, <laughs> and put them in the back of the of the tomb or carve a hole further in the tomb and open up the tomb again and then they would go out and they'd clean up the tomb real good and make it look 
like it had never been used. And then when the next family member died or the next individual was going to use that tomb, they would put that body in and it would, you know, wither away and, 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 and then they would take and sweep up the bones and put them in a box and put them away. And here he's, he's telling this guy, Shibner, you're making this great big sepulcher as if you're somebody special. And basically he's saying, who do you think you are? You know, you're not the king, you're the, tra you're the treasurer. <coughs> Which also then makes you wonder, wonder if he's just the treasurer for the king, where is he getting enough money to build this big sepulcher in the first place? Okay, and but God has got a curse coming upon Shibna, who thinks he's something special. He goes, you're, you're carving out this great big sepulcher in the rock. You're, you're creating your own, you're not even using, starting with a cave, you're having them carve out. And I'm sure that royal money was being used for this. <laughs> And what it says is, go, get you unto this treasure, even unto Shibna. So go to the treasure, and then the, even uh, unto Shibna. So there, now technically there are people who don't agree with me. I believe that that is a further description. He says, go to the treasure, and then go to Shibna, uh, and that's, or uh, unto Shibna, which I think they're just given the name. It would be kind of like me saying, uh, go see the president, Unto you know, unto Trump, you know, that's how I see it. There are commentators who don't see it that way. It says, "Go to the treasurer, even unto Shibna." To me, that is very clearly saying that Shibna is the treasurer. Uh, I could be wrong, but it seems pretty clear to me. So Shibna is building this great ornate burial place, which means even if he's not taking government money, he still thinks he's pretty important. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go build a big tomb. Uh, in Jerusalem, there were the tombs for the kings, built back up into the hill, into the hill behind in, where the city sits, and they had their little <laughs> tombs, and this is basically what he's saying, you know, you're, who do you think you are, a king? You know, you think you're so special. And God has a uh, curse coming upon him because God does not want us lifting ourselves up above who we are. And Shibna is just the treasurer. So he really has no position. But even for his people, sometimes we get proud of things we do and, and think that, you know, hey, look at me. I, I'm, I'm pretty important. If it wasn't for me, things just wouldn't happen in the church or around, around here. And that's a very dangerous place to get when you think it's all about you because it all has to be about God the king, the master, the ruler. Now, each one of us is a tool in his hand, and he can use any one of us to do things. Will some people be more important than others? Obviously, that's the way life goes. In a family, there are certain people that are more important than other people in the family, but everybody in the family is needed. And here he's saying, you know, hey, you're a treasurer. You're important. You've got a very important job. You're, you keep the taxes. You keep, you, you're in control of the budget. You're in control of spending. But you're setting yourself up for your burial as if you're king. And so this is a pretty big deal. And I've been in churches where people think, you know, well, nothing would get done if it wasn't for me. And they're, they're probably not even the pastor. But, you know, they're, uh, you know, they just think so highly of themselves. And it's like... <coughs> No. You know, one thing I have learned over my many years is nobody is indispensable in any place or anything. 
you may be very important and what you do may be very important and it may be hard to replace you, but every single person has been able to be replaced. I've seen them get fired because they get so, you know, think they're so big and they do something stupid. I've seen them die. I've seen them quit. You know, and God manages to, or, you know, things go on. A business rolls on, a church rolls on, a family rolls on. Uh, and here we have Shibna kind of living it up saying, hey, I'm so important. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be buried like a king. They're going to they're gonna know about me for, forever. And here is, here is God's answer in verse 17. Behold, the Lord will carry you away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover you. All right? So he says, I'm going to take you away. You're, not even, you're building this great big sepulcher, and you're not even going to be able to use it. You're going to be carried away into captivity. And, and I love this, surely carried away. And then, then he gets into a kind of a poetic picture of this. Behold, the Lord will, uh, excuse me, he will surely violently turn and toss you like a ball into a large country. You know, uh, so this captivity he's going into isn't going to be easy for him. Now you picture this, you know, he's going to wrap him, he's going to wrap him up, because that's what surely violently turned, you know, talks about him being wrapped up, kind of made into a ball, and God says he's going to throw you into a, throw you or toss you into another country. This is not a pretty picture. It's a very violent picture when you look at it. It says, and there you shall die. Okay? You're building this temple. You're building this magnificent you know, uh, edifice to yourself, and you're going to be sent away, and you're going to die in another country. This is something that we do need to be careful of because sometimes it's not wrong to make plans for our future, but we can't get so wrapped up into plans that God can't move us. And here's Shibna kind of getting, uh, here, yeah, I've got this great big tomb up here, and when I die, I know where I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to be up there on that hill, and everybody's going to see my sepulcher, and they're going to remember, that's the tomb of, of Shibna. And God says, nope, I'm going to get you out of the land. You're going to die there. And too many people put too much faith in it. You know, I've seen so many people who will put large sums of money for retirement. They won't take any vacations. They won't take any time off work. They put all their money, you know, one day when I retire, I'm going to be able to travel. I'm going to be able to do this. I'm going to be able to do that. And I've, me I've seen many of them not even get to retirement or get to retirement and spend a year in retirement and die or they're invalids at retirement and they can't go anywhere. You know, there are all kinds of things that happen to them or the market crashes and they lose all their money just before they retire. You know, we've got to be careful what we put our, our faith and our hope in. And this is what God tells us. You know, our hope needs to be in him. There's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with saying, I'm going to put money away for retirement. There's nothing wrong with planning for the future. But our hope isn't in it. Because things can turn around in a heartbeat. Uh, we know that the economy's crashed at least once majorly in our country during the Great Depression. We know that God has promised that the, that the economy is going to crash <coughs> toward the end times. He says that a, that a bag of gold buys, or it says a, a loaf of bread will buy a bag of gold. <laughs> you know, the valuable thing is the bread, not the gold. And people with lots of money are going to be able to afford bread for a little while. You know, so we want to be careful. What is our hope in? Shibna is putting his hope in his 
name, I guess is what you're going to say. I'm going to be put myself in a good, beautiful edifice. People are going to remember who I am. And God says, no, you're going to die alone in a foreign country. And it's going to be a violent way to get there. Well, it takes away everything he thought he had. He thought he had everything, and he's going to end up with nothing. And this is also the way it is in the world. People get what they think they want sometimes, you know, and get it and find out it wasn't what they wanted in the first place, whatever that might be. I mean, it's different for every, every person. Some people have very small dreams, and they get there, and even that small dream doesn't fulfill. Others have these huge dreams. I'm going to be, everybody's going to know my name. I'm going to be a famous uh, athlete, a famous actor, famous singer. And they get there and they just find out, wow, this isn't, this isn't as great as I thought it would be. It doesn't, you know, do the people like me or do they like my characters? Do they like, just like my songs? Do they like the money I have? You know, do they really like me? And they find out they don't have anything because only God can give that ultimate satisfaction. And Shidna is practicing this. He goes, he's getting a name. People know who he is. He's high up in the government. And he's going to build this great big edifice. And God says, no, you're not going to get to have any of it. Everything you have is going to be taken away. He says, there shall you die, and the chariots of your glory shall be the shame of your Lord's house. So he says, everything that you've gathered is going to be used against you guys. All your chariots. All, all, all the strength that you thought you had. And then it says, I will drive you from your station, and from the st your state shall he be put down. And from your state shall he be put down. So in other words, you're going to lose everything, which is going into captivity. You think you're special. You think you're important. Now you're going to be nothing but a slave. Uh, this is what Joseph went through with his brothers. He, he got a little, if you really look at the story of Joseph with his coat of many colors, he got a little big-headed when he started, had these dreams. You know, uh, you know I'm, I'm able to interpret dreams. Oh, I had this wonderful dream, you know. Uh, you know we're out in the field, bro brothers, and your, your sheaves bowed down to me. You know, why would he tell his brothers that? Yes, God had the dream. He could have kept that one to himself with no problem, saying, wow, someday, someday my brother's going to bow down to me. But no, he had to tell his brothers. Uh, look, guys, God's shown me that you're going to bow down to me. I'm sure that went over very well with his older brothers. Yeah, and we do, and we saw just what happened. Yeah, then he gets the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down, and his father overhears that one, and his father tries to chide him, you know, hey, you know, and it, you, know you shouldn't be talking like this, you know, because he knows how the brothers are going to take this. doesn't please him overly well that he's going to bow down to Joseph, but at least he, it says he hides it in his heart. Okay, well, I don't know what God's got in store for my son, but, you know, but he's getting a little big-headed. Deflate Joseph's <laughs> ego and pride a little bit before he could use him. Uh, you know, started out by being made a slave. You know, that's bad enough to be made a slave. You have nothing. You own nothing. And then to be falsely accused of rape and end up in prison. And prisons in those days were nothing like our prisons in our day. They were nasty holes, all right? The only way you got fed in those prisons is you got enough to survive, basically. You got a little piece of bread and some water. But unless you had family, you did not get food. And that's still true in a lot of places in this world today. And Joseph had to be deflated a little bit to say, you know, you're not, you're not all that. It's all God. And you know, if we get too high on ourselves, 
God will come along and help us to be humbled, to let us, let us know that, uh, he did, that he is the one that can do that. All right. And it says, I will drive you from your station, and, and, and from your state you shall be pulled down. In other words, you're going to lose all of your things that you think are so special. You're just going to be a slave. And you know, this is one of the hardest things for these guys when, they, when these leaders go into captivity. You know, a king or a prince or this guy with a treasurer. All the benefits of being royal and in the court are stripped away. And they go out and they are stuck just being a prisoner. Not having any authority, not having any say. And sometimes that's a pretty hard thing to do. And it can be hard even in a business if somebody's demoted or you lose your job or somebody comes along with a higher, higher position. And we see that kind of things happening. Verse 20, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Elikim, the son of he Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your girdle, and I will commit your government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulders so that he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. So he says, I'm going to raise up Elikim. And Elikim is eventually going to become king in Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going, to take, I'm going to take everything that you think is so good, your clothes, your, you know, your station, and I'm going to give it to Elikim. I'm going to raise him up. Why? Because it says it's his servant. God says he's my servant. Now, he's going to turn out to be not such a great king, but he's, he's raised up by God. Because when he starts out, he has the right heart. And you know, this is something we have seen over and over and over again. Saul is promoted to king. He starts out with the right heart, and then he gets proud. David, pretty good king overall. He has his downfall. Solomon, Solomon starts out good. If you, if you read the life of Solomon, it starts out in a, in a vision at night. God says, what would you like me to give you? I'll give you anything you ask for. And Solomon's answer, he's, he's like 30 or 40 years old, and he goes, I'm nothing but a child. I don't, I'm not wise. Give me wisdom. <laughs> and God says, well, be, I will give you wisdom, but because you didn't ask for, for power to defeat your enemies, I will give that to you. And you didn't ask for wealth, I'll give that to you. And God gives him everything that he could have asked for because he asked for wisdom. And then he spent most of his lifetime falling away from God. Okay, and most of that is because of all the women he married. They, it says that they stole his heart from God. He built them temples for their gods because he married so many foreign women. And, you know, you can almost picture it, you know, you know the wife goes, well, Solomon, you built me this beautiful temple, but you've never come, and, come with me to worship my God. Why don't, you know, and he probably started out good. No, I'm gonna, I only worship God, but you can only go so long without, before you finally say, okay, yes, I'm going to go. <laughs> I can go. It's not going to hurt. And that's the way we are with sin. Well, I can do this sin. It won't, you know, I can go to this party, you know, where all the drinking and drugging is going to go on, and I won't have any problems, and you probably won't the first time you go. 
Maybe not even the second time you go or the third time you go. But eventually the temptation starts to add up. And when we hang with the wrong people, we do the wrong things, eventually we will end up in sin. And this is why it is so important for us to guard our hearts. Guard where we're at. Because when we hang out with the wrong people, even if we have no desire to do it, do the things they're doing, eventually, if we keep hanging out with them, we'll find ourselves getting wrapped up in their, their life. Whatever that life might be. Okay? Whether it's alcohol or drugs or the gang life or a thief or whatever. Um, you know, one of the guys I know at the prison, he goes, well, I would have never got caught if my, my uh, girlfriend had kept a better watch for the police. <laughs> you know, it's all her. You know, he's in prison because of her. Yeah. No, it wasn't what he was doing that was wrong. It was that she didn't keep a good enough eye. And she ended up, because she was the accomplice, <laughs> going, to, you know, going, going to prison. You know, but, you know, we end up getting wrapped up in a lifestyle if we're not careful. And this is why I've said over and over, going to church is not going to make you have a good lifestyle, but it's going to be a cursor to a better lifestyle. At least you're going to be with people who are in God's word and, and trying to lift up God, and you should have a better life following God because you will be with people that are trying to make better decisions. Trying to be a Christian hanging out with the guys drinking, drinking their booze and getting drunk every night is going to be a very rough lifestyle. It, even if you don't end up drinking, there's nothing there in that environment that's going to encourage you to be more godly. Because the more people drink, the stupider they get, and the more ugly their conversations get, and the more violent they get, and the, the more mistakes they make. You know, it just, it happens. I've seen it. I've gone to family events where people, nice, nice family members, start drinking. You know, after about an hour, they're being silly and stupid. I usually leave about that time. And I hear about them doing really stupid things and, and knocking holes in walls or into each other. Uh, and it's like, well, I'm glad I left when I did. You know, I'm glad I left when you were just plain being stupid. Uh, but you know, this is the thing that we look at. Elohim is going to be a good king to start with. He's following God. He's going to turn into a not good king. He's going to listen to the wrong advisors. And this is something that's important. Who do we listen to? Who are our advisors? When we need help, who do we go to? And this is something that is very important. Do we seek godly help? Do we seek godly advice? Because I have seen it happen in, even in churches. You know, well, I'm having these problems. And you end up with the world's advice. You know, even in a church, you can be talking to the wrong person for advice. We want to be able to get in and say, this is what God says. Well, I didn't really want to hear what God says. Well, sorry, that's all I can give you is what God says. You either, either follow God or don't follow God, but if you don't follow God, you're going to have worse consequences. You follow God, he's going to, you're going to be blessed by God for following him. And this is something that is very important for us to be able to understand. Am I going to follow God? Am I going to obey God? And... Uh, Elohim is not going to make those decisions. He's going to surround himself. He starts out saying that God is going to give him everything. 
Verse 22 says, And the key to the house of David I will lay on his shoulders, or the government, and he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Those words should sound somewhat familiar. In Matthew 16, Jesus gives the, the disciples the authority to close and open, and no man would change it. In Revelation 3, 7, Jesus is told, is set up that he holds the kings. What he opens will not be closed, and what he closes will not be open. You know, he's basically saying, I'm giving them the power. I'm giving him power to make decisions, and when he says something, it is the way it's going to be, and it's not going to be changed. Uh, and this is an important power, and yet we have that as Christians in, so, in, a, in a small sense. He says, you know, we have the power to bind and forgive. Most of that is in what do we do with sin? You know, people that will not forgive sin are trying to bind that individual, but they're also binding their heart and other people who listen to them. And this is, I say this so often, if I don't forgive somebody, I usually end up talking about them. Sometimes to people who don't even know them. And it's kind of amazed to me, I was talking to somebody and, and they were telling me about how bad somebody is. Oh, oh, when did you meet them? I haven't. Well, what do you know? Well, so-and-so has told me all about them. I'm going, you don't know this person and you don't like them. One thing I have learned over the years is that when somebody's talking to you about something, their, their opinion is always slanted. There may be truth in it, and probably is truth in it. But I've done enough conflict resolution that if you listen to one party, you're mad at the other party before you even talk to them. And then you listen to them, and you're mad at the other party, and you go, okay, we've got to find the truth here. Now, are either one of them necessarily lying? No, they're telling you the truth as they see it in many cases. Yeah. Most people, when they tell you their story, emphasize the bad of the person that they're talking about and de-emphasize any of their activity on it. You well, know, when I was with this person, they were yelling and screaming at me, and what did you do? Nothing. Well, I did call them a pretty bad name. You think maybe that's why they were yelling and screaming at you? Well, no, well, they really shouldn't have done that. Well, you're right, they shouldn't have done that, but you shouldn't have called them you know, but you dig deep and all of a sudden you find out <laughs> both people in parties in the, in, in the conference uh, conflict had problems and escalated the prob problem. And I literally have met people that have been very angry at somebody that they don't know because of listening to somebody else telling them stories about them. And again, there may be elements of truth in it, maybe more truth or less truth, but we've got to be careful. One of the things we try to do when we're trying to get back at somebody is try to make everybody dislike them, whether they know them or not. And we speak about them and we share about them. You know, we need to be careful about that. Because number one, our, our motive isn't very pure either when we're doing that. I'm going to make sure you look really bad in their eyes. <laughs> I'm going to make you pay. I'm mad at you and you're going to pay. And the problem is they may not even know that they've done anything wrong at some times. And many times they don't even know they've done something wrong. And this is where forgiveness comes in. And we say, I'm going to forgive this person. I'm not going to try to hurt them. And our hurting doesn't necessarily mean me going in and, and physically trying to hurt them. I can hurt them by tearing up their reputation behind their back. Or, and 
behind their back with people they don't even know. I've never seen any sense in that, but it happens all the time. You're just so mad at this person that you've got to tell everybody about them. They don't know them and haven't got a clue who you're talking about. And yet, wow, this person is really, who, who is this person? What's this person's name so I know who to avoid? And all of a sudden, then you meet the person and maybe they're not as bad as that person made them out to look, but you're, you're looking for all that bad. And you're now struggling with, they don't seem to be this bad, but my friend has been telling me about how bad they are. So they must really be bad. And now you're struggling with how are you going to deal with this person. And now you're mad at this person. They really don't even know who, why you're mad at them because all they did was say, hi. Hi, my name's so-and-so. You're that person? <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden, you're, you're ready to rip their head off and they haven't done anything. We need to be careful with this. This is why forgiveness is so important for us, to forgive one another. Jesus said we're to love our enemies, we're to forgive our enemies, we're to do good to them. Why? Well, because, number one, it's not expected. <laughs> Somebody who's truly an enemy knows that they've hurt you. And if you're kind back to them, it's going to surprise them. doesn't mean they necessarily would be your best friend. Not somebody you're going to hang out with. Well, you know what? God, who should I hang out with today? Uh, I'm supposed to love my enemy. I guess I've got to go hang out with my enemy. No, that's not what God is saying. Okay? But he is saying you're not going to be talking bad about them. You're not going to be tearing them down. When they're around, you're going to say something good. And maybe even actually, heaven forbid, do good things for them behind their back. Uh, that would be love but not necessarily making them your best friend. You know, that, that is not where love comes, in, comes into in this. It says, I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Now, kind of look at this. You should, and I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and this is literally a stink, stink, uh, tent stake. Okay? And this is something they would be very familiar with in that area. And maybe not so much in Jerusalem, but other people hearing it. These tent stakes, uh, we saw that Sisera was killed by a tent stake through the temple. They were several feet long because in those winds, you had to have a very sure tent stake. And you drove it deep into the ground. And so when they're talking about this tent stake, they're talking about a huge stake. He says, this is a sure stake. And I'm going to make and fasten him in a sure place. And says, he's going to be fastened. He's going to be protected. And, and they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantities and from the vessels of cups, even into the vessels of the flagon. So he says, he's going to get everything. Even down to the smallest pen type thing, he's saying. He's getting everything. And Elohim was given everything. He was raised up from obscurity and given everything. Now, he didn't rule very long because he decided he was going to rebel. So he just took Hezekiah's place? No, it's later on. It's it, this is way down in the future. This is, uh, there's a couple bad kings between, between them. This is actually quite future. <laughs> Uh, this is going to take place toward the very end of the kingdom uh, that Elohim is going to be getting this job. So again, God names an individual. God has 
God's prophecies are very specific. His aren't like the, the prophecies of Notre Dame, which are so poetic that anything and everything could, could fulfill them. God says, this guy, I'm going to give him a name. He says, Cyrus, 70 years after you've Babylon, uh, after they go into captivity with Babylon, is going to release the people back to, to uh, the promised land. And by the way, he's a Medo-Persian. Well, the Medo-Persians at the time of the prophecy were a small tribal group that was just starting to get some power. And Cyrus was not even a thought in Darius's eye, <laughs> eye yet. Uh, and so he's named, the people are named, and you know, okay. This little tribal group, this, this group that's just up and coming, getting a little bit of power, is going to take Babylon? You know, are you guys insane? <laughs> and, the, and the time on that was Babylon wasn't even that great a, great a country. All right? God's prophecies are so specific. Jesus, to be born in Bethlehem, be sent to Egypt, and be known as a Nazarene. Okay? All right. He's going to be born here. He's going to travel a couple hundred miles to Egypt, and then he's going to go back a couple hundred miles and become and live, grow up being known as a Nazarene. You know, you would even think if he was born in Bethlehem and, and maybe go to Egypt, where, where's the most likely place to go? Back to Bethlehem, not Nazareth. But you know, all these things come in, and God says this is what's happened. He says that Jesus would die on a on a on a tree, nailed to a tree. Picture of the cross long before crosses were being used for killing people. And that he would die, that he'd be buried in a borrowed tomb with, among the rich when he was poor. And all of that happened. And that he would rise again. It's amazing when God predicts these things. That's why when we read through the book of Revelation and people go, well, these things can't happen. Well, that's what everybody has said all along. God says there's going to be an earthquake that's going to shake the mountains from their, from their spaces and level them out. I believe there'll be an earthquake that will be so violent it will shake down the mountains. You know, because God said it was going to be there. Luckily, I will be in heaven. I won't see that earthquake. I'd be glad not to see that earthquake. And that happens real close to the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, you know, we see all these things happening in God's provisions you know, he said that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And what happened? Born of a virgin. And so we see these things happening. And here is a place where we have a prophecy that happens. We know that it happens uh, because we're past it. They're probably, they're probably thinking of, okay, who is Eliakim? Yeah. All right. I don't know who this Eliakim you're talking about is. So, all right. Uh, and it says you're gonna, he's going to get everything, it, down to the smallest cup, to the biggest flagons or the big drinking cups, uh, small vessels, everything. He's going to get all the children, all the, all the people. He's going to have everything. And it was just dumped in his lap. The king, the king Nebuchadnezzar just said, here, it's yours. All you have to do is obey me. He did for a couple of years. Then he rebelled and had the kingdom taken away from him. And in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and cut down, removed and cut down and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, in the, for the Lord hath spoken. So, sure nail, God pulled it out when he, dis, when he was disobeyed. And from our perspective, this is a fact. We, we know that this is true. 
He had the kingdom for a very short time. All he had to do was be obedient to Nebuchadnezzar and give him his tax money. But he decided that he was going to try to hire Egypt to help him. And didn't work. He was, he was taken into captivity and taken out. I do not want to go into the next chapter, so we're going to end here.